pay attention to what's going on in the body and the mind and the valences of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral and what the mind does in response to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And then, ta-da, if you pay attention, what would you see? And the fourth foundation of mindfulness is really called the, the mindfulness of the Dharma, mindfulness of what's true, mindfulness of how things really are, however you want to translate that word Dharma. And it's really a compendium of things that you might notice if you paid attention to the body and to the mind and to the different ways in which the attention moves towards things that are pleasant and away from things that are unpleasant really uh, reactively rather than uh, responding out of awareness. Huh, this is happening. What should I do now? How can I respond to this situation in a way that um, either cultivates or continues peace in my heart, does not make my situation worse, does not create suffering for other people? How can I keep the frame of my mind wide enough, that's another way to put it, to be able to hold this? So part of the wisdom, we could start from here, part of the wisdom of the fourth noble truth is if we mindfully attend to Mindfully actually means pay attention. It's a funny word in English. Uh, it's a, we we don't. Uh, it's more British English. Uh, that particular word. It, it you'll see in the, in the subways in England. And you get off the train. It will the little sign. It'll say "Mind the gap." You know, it means don't fall in the hole between the train <laughs> and the 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 platform. Mind the step. We don't say that. We say pay attention to it, look out for it. But mind means pay attention to it, notice it. So the earlier uh, uh, translations of Dharma into English were made by British scholars. And the the term mindfulness, which comes from the, the Pali word sati, has been translated as mindfulness, could be translated as pay attention to this is paying attention meditation. More and more I go other places to teach and I tell people I'm, I'm teaching paying attention rather than mindfulness because when people say mindful of what? So we're supposed to be mind empty. You know, It makes a whole confusion. It's not mindful or mind empty. It's mind alert and seeing what's happening. And what it might see is that it's true that life is challenging all the time because we're saying, oh, look, this is happening. What should I do now that's a skillful thing to do that does not create suffering for myself or anybody else? That's the whole entire thing of life. I'll tell you a story that happened last week. So like one small little line out of an event in the week. But I get to tell you a story about Mexico. So, so I taught at a lovely hotel in Zihuatanejo. How many people were here when Jashoda was teaching the early morning yoga before class? So Jashoda and her friend Brahmani, uh, two extraordinary yoga teachers with two extraordinary assistants, uh, and one of them right here this morning, Mark, back there, and uh, um, another assistant were uh, teaching yoga. And they've been doing it for, this was the seventh year, I think, in this particular hotel in Zihuatanejo. This is on the, how many people here have been in Zihuatanejo? 
So it was a resort on the on the mainland Mexico coast on the Sea of Cortez, actually south of the that bay, south of Acapulco, south of uh, Mazatlan. The water is so warm that you can walk into it without pausing. That's the kind of that is the kind of ocean that I appreciate. I like that. I like that. It's like walking into a bathtub. So it's, you don't have to stop. It's not you have to get used to it. It's very beautiful. This hotel is on the side of the hill overlooking the bay. Uh, you take off. You can take off your shoes when you arrive, and not put them on until you leave because all of the floors are tile or smooth stone, and the, and the hotel goes down to the beach so that you step off the hotel right onto the beach, never step on the street. The sand is warm. And in the morning from 7 to 10, and in the afternoon from 4 to 6, and at night from 9.15 until 10, there were sessions in this lovely outdoor pavilion that overlooked the bay and was part of the hotel, and the breezes came off it in the morning. It was dark when we came down, and people all sitting quietly or doing walking meditation, and the breezes coming, and sat for the first meditation from 7 to 8, and the sun came up. It was lovely. And uh, I thought a lot, and I want to come back to this point, about uh, 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 teaching from my friend uh, Steve Cope, um, who's a very senior yoga teacher at Kripalu Institute and a good friend of mine, who says, essentially, people have to feel in their body and mind safely held and soothed. And when they feel at ease, safely held and soothed, the wisdom that we need is self-revelatory. That the, the fundamental wisdom of life, that it's here for a short time, that the very best way to feel connected to it and fulfilled by it is to be able to bless and to love and to connect as much as possible that animosity and um, aversity and um, contention creates tension in the mind. That the second, first noble truth is life is always challenging. There's always something new. We'll tell you a challenge story right away that challenge is not a problem. Challenge is what it is to be alive in this world. I mean, you get up in the morning, it's challenging, you get hungry several times a day. I mean, that's part of having a body, you get hungry. It gets tired, it looks for company, it needs this, it needs that, it needs stimulation. All of those are challenges, but we hope that we have those challenges. Those are normal challenges. We have neurology that creates those challenges for us, and for the most part, we're able to meet them. All kinds of challenges. We want to meet people. Generally, we want to meet people and form intimate bonds with them. If we form intimate, meaningful bonds with people, we're inevitably going to have to deal with loss because everyone is coming and going. and uh, We will lose everybody who's dear to us unless they lose us first. That's, so how to have the heart to do that. And basically, even the wisdom that we can do that and that we heal from it is in the middle of what we fundamentally know in our heart. And that that kind of wisdom is self-revelatory. While I'm thinking about the yoga-Buddhist connection, I should really talk about the fact that although 
the teachers that I taught with are trained in the yoga tradition of yoga wisdom, but it's so synchronous with what we teach as Buddha Dharma that it sounded for the most part like we were all talking out of the same vocabulary, out of the same heart. And I think it is synchronous with it. I think it's synchronous with all the wisdom of the world because I don't think there's such a thing as Buddhist wisdom or Hindu wisdom, except if you want to read it in a book and hear it articulated in that way, there is wisdom wisdom. And then in these books it's articulated this way and in another book it's articulated in another with another idiom. But the message is the same. The message in every idiom is that if we get mad at life because it isn't working the way that we want it to, then we suffer worse than if we don't get mad at it and we say, well, this isn't what I wanted, but what I got, what should I do now, is another way of addressing that situation, presumably in the best and most skillful way we can, but without adding to it the pain of contention. The second noble truth, the first noble truth is it's hard. I was listening to our prayers this morning, some people leaving this world, other people coming into this world. I I came home and connected with a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine in in, uh, this country that I talked to quite regularly, but we hadn't spoken in the nine days that I was in Mexico. So I needed to tell her the news about Martha dying. And she needed to tell me the news that her daughter is pregnant for the first time. So coming and going. And so we could be sad together and be happy together. That happens in life. So the mind, how does the mind not make contention and say, this shouldn't be happening to me? Because the third noble truth, which is part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the third noble truth is if we really could do that, we could discover the truth that there is such a thing as peace in life. Peace is possible with coming and going, with disappointment. Peace does not mean it's what we chose. It means that the mind has the malleability to say, this is it, it's like this. We were going around last week making up all kinds of folksy ways of saying uh, peace is possible that weren't like in whole um, scriptural language, peace is possible. You say, look, it's like this. You have to deal what you get. Uh, life is what you get. All, we were thinking of all the things that one's grandparents said. You know, that's life. What are you going to do? Everybody's grandpa- Everybody will report that their grandparents had such folksy wisdom. Folksy wisdom sounds like the Buddha, except when it comes out in the sutra, it's a little bit more um, dramatically spoken. One of the, and when we, when we were sitting earlier, I said it wasn't that some experience are pleasant and some are unpleasant, and we're supposed to fix them so they're all pleasant and none of them are unpleasant. We can't do that. Some of them are unpleasant. So how to be able to discover that an experience can be unpleasant, you can say, you know what, this is going on, but okay, I'm not going to at least add to this unpleasantness the contention of saying it shouldn't be happening, or why me? That's actually like a a favorite thing for the mind to say, why me? 
Uh, my friend Martha and I have been laughing somewhat ruefully about it. She said, well, mostly I don't think, why me? She said, every once in a while, I think, why me? It doesn't happen to everybody. I said, but then I think about why not me? It happens to, it happens to people. This is one of the things that happen. Um, and it's not fair. Another friend of mine recently wrote me an email and said, it's not fair is the, are the three words that have caused the most trouble in the history of the world. It's not fair. It's not fair, you know, but it's not, I mean, there's not any agreement that everything is fair. You know, the, the. Anyway, here's the story. The fourth noble truth, by the way, is that there is a training program to train the mind to be able to keep it from moving from challenge into fighting with it rather than assessing it and responding to it. That's the whole of the Dharma. We're constantly challenged. We have two possibilities. We can respond to it, assess it, and figure out what's going to keep my mind in the best shape. Or we can be led around by the challenges, frightened and bewildered, to keep making our challenges worse, tying our minds into greater and greater knots by impromptu, unthought through, Mindless, actually, responses, conditioned habits of the mind. We can make new habits of the mind that say, hmm, this isn't what I thought was happening, but what should I do now? So I had been talking a lot about making a bigger frame so that an experience, which really is an undesirable experience, which if it only filled up the whole entire mind so that there was no space around it, would lead to the thought, why me, poor me, woe is me, look what happened to me, but a space around it. So a woman named Susan who was on this retreat, um, a woman in her mid-50s, there with several of her friends from New York City, uh, was standing on the beach one afternoon. It's a very mild beach, really. It's, It's not rocky. Uh, the the sand is very gradual going, the sand is very warm, the water is very warm. She was standing knee-deep in clear, warm water. There were no rocks around. And suddenly, a uh, very large two waves came one after another. And the first one knocked her over a little bit, and the second one picked her up, knocked her over, and she fell down in such a peculiar way that she broke several bones in her ankle and completely dislocated her ankle from her foot. And that wasn't exactly an event. It's a, this is sort of, I think she was heroic. It was a terribly painful experience. She knew she had done something terrible and she was alone. Not alone on the beach, but alone in the water and it fell over. So what did you do? She said, well, I sat up and uh, now she's facing the waves and she's still seriously into the water. She said, I waited for the next wave to come and picked myself up and let it carry me back, my legs facing the water, carry her back to the shore, waited for another wave, rode it back towards the shore, waited for another wave, let it carry her back towards the shore. So then she got near enough to people to signal she's in trouble. And people came and picked her up and carried her up to some beach chair under an umbrella covered her with a shawl. You know, it's warm on the beach, but still you start to have a shock. And and they call up to the office in the hotel who call the paramedics, because this is clearly going to require an ambulance. And there's no way for um, 
a, an ambulance to drive down to the level of the beach. They have to drive several levels up in this hotel because the, then come down flights of stairs. So there was maybe a period of 10, 12 minutes, maybe 15 before the paramedics came. But here she is sitting, and, and by the time I hear about it and rush, and, you know, come down, they've gotten a big bag of ice. So here she is lying in the chair covered with a shawl, big bag of ice, and the toes are turning really purple and not looking good. And she's in a lot of discomfort about it, and breathing a little hard. And a little crowd of all the people who had been in the workshop were standing around her. And uh, a few people said, take a breath. Somebody said, you'll be all right. Someone said, why don't you close your eyes and take a few breaths? So you close her eyes and take a few breaths. It wasn't me, actually, who said that. Somebody else said, close your eyes, take a few breaths. She closes her eyes, and someone says, listen, Susan, you're going to be all right. And she said, she opened her eyes, and she said, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be all right. And it was like, in a moment, you calm down your mind. Somebody reminds you of what's true, and then you get a breath. And you say, oh, yeah, I'm going to be all right. So the mind that's a little bit frenetic because this has happened has now taken refuge in a truth of seeing into the future. I'm going to be all right this minute. I'm not fine, but I will be all right. You know, it's a broken foot. It was a seriously broken foot, actually, but I'm going to be all right. And then uh, here are all these people saying lovely things to her, and everybody was speaking in a nice low tone of voice. Nobody was frantic. The paramedics are going to come. They're going to come and take you to the hospital. They're going to figure it out. Yeah, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be all right. But everybody was very dear, and everybody was so sweet. And the paramedics arrived, and they put her on a stretcher and laced her in. You know, do you ever get hurt on a ski slope where they put you into one of those things? Who did that? And they have to lace you in because then they're going to ski you down the mountain, and they don't want you to fly out of the... <laughs> that little pallet while they're skiing you down. That's the worst fear you have, is either you'll fly out of that thing or they'll let go of it and the thing will fly down the mountain. But, uh, <laughs> but here, well here, they're going to carry her up a flight of stairs, so you could be really frightened about that too. So they lace her in very tightly to that. And as everyone is taking very careful care of her, we had talked a lot during the week about maintaining a space in the mind. We've talked about that here as well. I said it this morning, all hindrances are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. I've uh, used the analogy so many times of Václav Havel saying that the definition of hope is the ability to say no to the truth right in front of you and then to say, I don't mean no, this isn't true. I mean no, this isn't the only thing that's true. This is true, and there's space around it for other things to be true. And if you can make that space, then what's true is held in that context. And we've been talking about that all week. So here is Susan getting laced, and her foot is in terrible purple and swelling, and clearly very painful. And at one point, and everybody's been very kind. And at one point, she said, "This is a very wonderful first experience of having to have." of having an accident that requires paramedics and an, and an ambulance. So it was a just really, this is a very wonderful first experience of having an accident that requiring paramedics and an ambulance. And you could see that her mind had really reached 
to push out the boundaries of this. You have an accident, you have paramedics, and you have an ambulance. But as those experiences go, this is a very wonderful experience of that. So everybody gave her a great applause for that mind stretching. But, you know, I tell it to you, and by the way, they, they, um, it was too complex a break to fix in Zihuataneo. So they put a cast and she had to fly back to New York. And she is safely back in New York and safely operated on and safely getting better. But I, I tell it to you because it's an ordinary story. It happens in a million different ways every day that something happens that isn't what we expected. She was not doing a hazardous thing. She was standing in one foot of water in a warm surf in a relatively calm bay. But so we don't ever know what's going to be the next second. So that's one piece of that message, you know, that sometimes we think, well, everything is home free. You know, I've taken my vitamins and my cholesterol is low. For years, I had a, um, um, uh, a cartoon on my refrigerator uh, of uh, a man walking down a street in a big metropolis. So you, you think it's New York or something. It was out of the New Yorker. And he's walking along and he's carrying what's a readout from his clearly just doctor's appointment that he went to. And his cholesterol is low and his blood pressure is low and his HDL is right and everything is low, low, low. And he's walking along and he's reading this thing and you can see a big smile on his face. And in the meantime, from some window up in this building, there's a, like an office safe has fallen out the window, is falling down on him. So, and it must be famous enough because there's the Billy Collins poem, Picnic Lightning, that in which uh, there's that line. You know, you never know. The odd office safe that usually only shows up in a cartoon could fall on a person. You never know. The piece of uh, the inside of a vein, which this morning was fine, that breaks off in this afternoon lodges itself in the brain and you have a stroke. You just don't know from one minute to the next. She's standing in one foot of water. You don't know. That that awareness of you don't know on the level of safety in this life, in this body, you know, it's not to say you shouldn't take good care of yourself and watch the cholesterol and the blood pressure and the this and the this and the this, but everything happens to everybody with blood pressure. My friend Martha has great blood pressure and wonderful cholesterol and wonderful everything else and genes for pancreatic cancer. Her father died of it at more or less the same age. You know, you don't know. You don't know anything. But you only know, what we know is that we have this moment and we have this possibility of peace in this moment. I can't produce peace for three moments from now or for moments that have just gone uh, that are in the past. The only freedom I have at all is what to do in this moment with it and how to spend it. Someone asked during this last week retreat, uh, what about free will? Is there such a thing as free will? Does anybody have any free will? Or are we just pushed around by the habits of our mind? Do we ever make a free choice? What do you think? Think, think, think. Think, think, think. If you are on a debate team... Which side would you like? Yes, there is free will, and no, there is not free will. Boy. Boy. That's a big one, Betty. Especially in Buddhism. Especially in Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so um, 30 seconds of thinking. 30 seconds of thinking first, Julie. 30 seconds of thinking. 
Okay. Before we have individual thoughts, two minutes of think aloud with the person next to you. Okay, ready, set, go. You think and they think. What do you think? One or two people next to you. Join them over here. Oh, come on, Ray. From that point of view, when you say it's so brief, it's not so much frightening to me as it is so poignant to me mm-hmm. that we have our babies so briefly and then they grow. Right. And this moment is so beautiful and then it's over. So it, the, the thing that it does is it inspires me to see the beauty and to see the delight and to really enjoy it. You know, catch the beauty on the wings, so to speak. But, uh, mm-hmm. uh, no, it, it, it's not comforting yeah. to know you can't hold on to anything. Uh, except, I'm going to read a little line about that you see that it, it makes it that there's nothing to be afraid of. Except that I'll miss this moment. Okay. Here we go. So how many people, all those in favor of, all those in favor of there is no free will, everything is conditioned, raise their hands. I'm a little 
<laughs> all those in favor of there is no free will, it's all conditioned, raise their hand. Not so many. Betty a little bit. Okay. Well, so then all those in favor of there is free will. Okay. So... The, <laughs> all right. So let's have uh, three spokespeople. Come on, Mark. You come up here. Three spokespeople for there is some free will. Betty, are you speaking on the free will? Pardon? What am I doing now? You said there's some free will. Okay. Betty, you want to... There were some people, okay, Julie's going to do free will. Okay, Susan's doing free will. There, there, no, there, there is free will. This is or is not? Uh, it is. Is. So where are the is not people? <laughs> I saw is not people. Oh, I'm sort of... All right, Betty's going to be the, the good Buddhist. Okay, you come over here, Julie. You can be on the side. Okay, all right. Where, are the, where is this no free will? Yes, no free will. I'll help you out on that. I'll be, I'll be one because okay. All right. One sentence. This is not everybody's final word. These are just three people's thoughts, right? Okay, go. Um, well, I'm going to quote you. <laughs> I think that it's not what we want. It's what we got. I think that the things are given to us, and it's not really what I have, but how we deal with it. And I think the choice, the free will comes in um, how I'm going to, how I'm going to deal with what's given to me. Um, that's where I think the free will is. All right. So now let Mark say what he thinks free will is. Well, am I on? I don't disagree with Susan. I, uh, let me think, what, what the heck do I think? It's, uh, <laughs> it's more that, as we were saying to each other, it's, this, whatever it is that whatever our response is, there's so much conditioning that's gone into that response to begin with. What, how much of the response is actually freely taken or made? And then also, I think we got off onto talking about about uh, emotions that we feel: fear, in her case, and, and anger in mine. And these things come up. I mean, uh, no volition is involved in that. They they come up. And we're afraid or we're angry, but we do have some choice after this feeling has has arisen, you know, about what we do with it. We don't always have, we don't always truly have choice because we might just go right through with the thing, the feeling might take us somewhere before we know what's happening. But anyway, and, and I would say that there is some choice at that moment, some choice, <laughs> some choice. Julie says, <laughs> a choice. I would, I would add to what both of them said. I know earlier on when Sylvia was saying about not feeling aversion and hatred, and I am, and it's very easy for me to go into that about our political situation and why my grandparents came to this country in the first place, um, uh, and, and terrifically sad and angry aversion, and then in the sense of free choice of whether to see the glass is half empty or half full, I remembered, similar to what you said, that at the Zen Center, there's a big ABC, a painting on the wall of ABC, and it's, it refers to a bigger container. So when I put Bush in a hundred-year frame, and I say within a hundred years, 
this will get Alito and Bush will, there'll be some proportion. I can make a choice about seeing the glass half empty or half full and therefore mitigate some of the aversion that I experience. So everybody's, so everybody's so far talking about choice. I can do X or Y, can do this or this, okay. Betty. Just passing the microphone here. Um, when I think of having a free choice, the problem is is that you don't know what circumstances you're going to be in if you've ever been exposed to a Buddhist idea or a Buddhist thought or maybe you're, I mean, you don't know what puts you in the frame of mind to be able to make those choices. So um, it's I don't think it's simple enough to say that you have a free choice, not that what you do doesn't make a difference. It does make a difference, but no one really understands the organizing force, I don't think, behind the universe and what puts you in a situation to make the better or worse choice. Hi, I'm Betty. Um... Again, uh, I'm just studying, you know, some of these concepts. And I used to think that, you know, free will was, you know, you just did it. You know, you just write like that. But now I'm learning that there are causes and conditions depending on your circumstances. But there are causes and conditions that put you in an environment where you either have wisdom or knowledge and you make a choice. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Now you. <laughs> <laughs> now me. Anybody else wants to add something to that? Go ahead. Right where you are. I think that um, both things are true, that mm-hmm. we have a synchronistic environment and that things do come to us. And we have a choice. We always have a choice, no matter what comes. Just like the girl on the beach. She could have gone screaming when she felt like she broke her ankle, but she didn't. So she had a choice. And when all the people came around her, they had a choice. So they dealt with the synchronistic experiences by choosing. Mm. What else? Ray? Uh, I think that the only thing we do have is a choice. We're given the template. Whatever the template is, your only choice is to act. And... Um, uh, what you can do. You can't change the world except by your own actions. And um, I think your own actions precipitate your own angels. <laughs> you know, if you act the right way, I told my 11-year-old who was very very caring to a boy who had lost his father, but the boy was a real pain in the ass. And I said, uh, Ben, I said, when something really great happens to you later on and you wonder why me, I think you maybe made the angel that took care of you at that moment by being gentle with this boy who had just lost, uh, you know, the worst time of his life, he mm. his father. Mm. So uh, I think the only thing we have is our own actions. That's what we have control of. Otherwise, everything else is out of our control. Mm. Okay. Michelle? Well, we Same talked thing. about this. I thought I, I, I knew right it was one way or the other. But I think of, I, I am a nurse. I've been in a psych ward, and without exception, every person in that psych ward was either sexually or physically abused as a as a child, and they came here with such pain and suffering. I could never, I couldn't work in that unit. 
I feel they didn't, ha you know, I mean, if you looked at the esoteric point, well, maybe coming into this life, they chose that life. Mm -hmm. I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. But I do know that um, those people reacted to their environment mm -hmm. and are very sad souls. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't have an answer, cut or dry. Mm -hmm. I, I, mm -hmm. I believe we have choice. Mm -hmm. I have no answer. Mm -hmm. I guess I think it's it's both also, but I suppose if I had complete and total awareness of how every little thing in the in the cosmos affects every thing else, uh, a snowflake falling somehow or other impacts everything that ever happened and ever will happen. In that sense, I I guess maybe there isn't free will. But I don't have that kind of awareness, so I am um, aware that it was certainly my choice to be here this morning. Um, I mean, there are lots of things that <coughs> I s seem to be making ch choices about, <laughs> but, you know, was that because of the family that I was born into was, I mean, Everything impacts everything else, and I don't, my awareness is limited. I like to look at it as a, I don't, I don't have a choice because of past karmic episodes. So I don't have a choice about what's happening or what's going to happen. But in the moment, I, I do have the choice <coughs> of reconciling what's, you know, mm -hmm. what's happening, what's going to be happening, at least in that moment. Mm -hmm. You know, the, as everyone is speaking, one more. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Are we talking sort of about independent arising? And could you talk about the chain of the leading of events? I'm not well, I'm thinking a lot about, as we're all talking about, in the moment, uh, that everything that happens at any time is as a result of all uh, of such interrelated karma forever, in all directions, in impossible to comprehend. In the moment of, our, of responding, uh, is that a free moment, or is that moment conditioned, and no other moment can come out of it? There are ways to think about that, uh, and I, I just want to say it out to you, because I, I think it has a lot to do with intention. I want to make everybody right, so because everybody's been talking about choice, because choice anyway is a matter of part of intention. So first of all, when I this is a, a small a small event, but when I was actually uh, quite uh, early in my own intensive meditation practice, I uh, I noticed with some pleasure that uh, not everybody was as scrupulous as I was about following the particular schedule for the day. Bell rings, 4.30, get up, 5 o'clock, sitting, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk. I followed that schedule. And I had a lot of pleasure about... I, actually, my, my practice at that point was my mind wasn't relaxed and I didn't actually have particular insight. And I had a lot of faith. I had a lot of faith because the Dharma sounded right to me. But I didn't feel in my life any more insight. My, I was just as frightened of my life as I was beforehand. But I had a lot of faith. 
And I also took a lot of pleasure in being like, like a really good retreatant. You know, I thought to myself, I'm really good. Look at me. You know, like a star on a, on a you know, second grader. No tardiness, no absences, they're on time. So I was a little bit patting myself on the back for that. Until I, and, I, and I've taken pleasure in it. And then I realized at one point that I didn't have the option to not do that. It wasn't as if I got up in the morning when the bell rang and thought to myself, hmm, should I get up or should I not get up and sit? That if you've had my parents and my grandparents and my background, and the bell rings in the morning and there's a place where you're supposed to be after that bell rings, your body gets up out of the bed and shows up there. It was not any particular... I didn't have to say, nah, forget about lying in the bed. It was not. So, it was such a non-option that it doesn't arise in the mind. So I can't get any points for doing that. That's just what happens. If I teach well, and this I seriously think about a lot now, if I teach well, uh, I am so aware that the karma of the moment has just been, uh, it's a salubrious moment, that anything that any of my teachers ever said to me is available to me, that my mind is clear enough at that moment to have it all come into my consciousness, that my health is good enough at that moment, that my mind is working, that I'm not sleepy, that for that in that moment, you know, for whatever reasons of all those converging uh, salubrious factors, the Dharma comes out of me in a good way, and that I didn't do it. It happened because of all of these events. I've had all these wonderful teachers and all these possibilities to study, and I have the, the great um, blessing of a fairly sound mind and body. So there's, there isn't an I who said, boy, I really prepared for this talk, and I did great. I don't, it just comes out well. It doesn't come out well. And, you know, I might not have prepared also, uh, and sometimes it might not come out great, but if I didn't prepare because I was too rushed or too this or too that, that, in a sense, also isn't my fault because my intention was to do good. Maybe I didn't have time. Or maybe the, you know, maybe something else happened or maybe I had a sick friend or something else happened. The, the circumstances of the moment did not su- support the Dharma coming out in the most exquisitely clear form, that's not my fault either. When I am aware that nothing happens apart from everything else happening, it removes from me the burden of praise and blame. I didn't do it if it was good, and I'm not responsible for it if it wasn't so good. It's a great relief to have things happening as a result of causes and conditions. Now, the thing that really is clear to me in my own life is the cause and condition that seems central in how things come out is intentionality. That uh, not maybe moment to moment, but it is so clear to me. You know, these are two path parts of right, wise understanding and wise wise dedication or wise aspiration. I am so aware that I am happier. I am happier when I am responding in a way that does not create more suffering for myself and for other people. That wise response is a cause for my own happiness and other people's happiness. I so get that, that I so do not want to be led around by the impulsive habits of mind that create knots in my mind and, and suffering in other people's mind as well. 
that I have that as a general intention. I think we all do here, otherwise we wouldn't be here on a Wednesday morning. That what, the, um, I guess it was Sogni Rinpoche who said, everything hangs on the point of intention. That that wise aspiration may be the least explicated part of the path. Talk a lot about wise mindfulness or wise concentration or wise effort. Wise aspiration is that that says, that's where I want to go. I know where I want to go. Which directs my choice or which forms the frame out of which I am most likely to make wise response. That doesn't mean I always make wise response. That something happens, like Mark said, you get mad about something. And you think about the repust that you're going to say to that person when you see them again. You hear so-and-so said, da-da-da, about you. You think, oh, really? Well, mm. when I see them, I'll just subtly say, da-da-da-da-da. And I hear that little discussion in my mind, and it says, you know what? So you can't do that. <laughs> now, I don't know that that's any kind of free will on my part. I think it's a habit of mind set in place by that intention. I can't have that intention and not have this other habit come up, give it to them, stick it to them, without noticing that that habit has come up and say, wait a minute, that's not the habit that I want to go with now. I think it's intention that makes the whole difference. So that when we, when we, one of the reasons that I like taking um, refuges and precepts so much, I take refuge in, in the possibility of an awakened mind. I take refuge in the, in the Dhamma, in a, really a path towards the purification of the heart through attention. I take refuge in the community that supports me. By the way, next week is the second Wednesday of the month. I hope you will show up at 7 o'clock in the morning. A lot of us do. We show up at 7 o'clock in the morning, we sit, we take refuges and precepts, and then from 8 to 9, we eat a potluck vegetarian breakfast that everybody brings something to share. It's very nice. We never have more than 10 or 12 people. But it's a great thing. It's a great thing. One, one time we had 20. That was a very major big day. We had 20. We had 20. But if we all came, imagine having 50 or 60 people say, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. If I undertake that as an intention, then if I think to myself, when I see that person, it, it conflicts with the hardware I have in there. The hardware that I've installed is I undertake the vow to abstain from harming living beings. As I'm hatching some revenge, it, it falls into the hardware that's installed there. And so I think that if, it, if there was any free will, maybe it's the free... Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure. It would be the free will of installing that piece of hardware. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I have the feeling, now actually I want to think about this, I'm thinking about it until next week. Because I always like to think, this might be an interesting thing, I'll give it to you to think about as a homework too. I'm fond of thinking, I've, I've always said this, but it could be wrong and I may have just found it to be wrong, so think. I've always said that if I had enough understanding, if I saw really clearly enough the truth that I suffer and I cause suffering when I give in to those habits of mind that are other than loving, caring, connecting, soothing, 
compassion, forgiveness, that I suffer and other people suffer. That if I saw that, what really had wise understanding of the nature of suffering and the causes of happiness, that my intention to not do that would be self-sustaining. That that second step, taking a vow, wouldn't be necessary. That the wisdom itself would hold the vow there. Not sure if the wisdom itself holds the vow there. Because, and this is also Mark brought up and Susan brought up, when something surprises us and startles us and the mind becomes confused, everything I ever knew falls out of it. I become completely unwise. It's like, it's like you have a, you have a uh, uh, amnesia. You know, there are a lot of things. Who here doesn't know that it's better to be kind? Everybody knows. <laughs> it's five minutes to 11. I want to read you two things because this is the end of a story. I was going to start with this today and I didn't. <laughs> so I'm going to end with it and bring it back next week. I got a, and I'm also soliciting some input from you. Um, I got an email from uh, the Shambhala Sun this week saying that they're doing, and then two issues from now, they're going to have a, a compilation of responses to the question, if someone asked you for good uh, Dharma books to read, what would you tell them and why? So um, I, I wrote them back one. I said I would tell them the vision of Dhamma by Nyana Panaka because there are, this is a book of essays and I just like them very much. I'm going to tell you about one of them. They said, well, how about another one? And this one, we hardly, I, I'm sure it's not even in our bookstore. It's an old book and you don't see it a lot. It's called Tranquility and Insight by Amadeo Soleleras, who I don't even know. He's a member of the London Buddhist Vihara and teacher of wide scholarship, renowned authority in Pali and early Buddhist texts. He works for the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome. And uh, I, for some years, it's, a, it's about concentration and mindfulness, which is what uh, tranquility and insight are. And it has two paragraphs in the very beginning that I, uh, one of them I seriously typed out put on a little piece of paper like a bookmark, took it to Kinko's and got it um, permaplaked on both sides and carried it around as a bookmark as it was a romantic notion. It was uh, that the whole uh, adventure was following a story about Blaise Pascal who presumably one evening going home from some engagement suddenly saw the glory of God revealed to him in a, actually a physical vision and his heart so sustained, he wrote down on a piece of paper what that vision meant to him and brought up in him. And according to accounts, pinned that vision into the inside of his coat and wore that inside the lapel of his coat every day until his death. So that's like such a, isn't that lovely? So I thought to myself, I'm taking this particular paragraph. I didn't pin it in the inside of my coat, but I permaplaked it on a piece of paper. Because it's the very beginning of talking about the Buddha's teachings. And um, Well, I can read you two paragraphs. This is not the paragraph I put in the coat. 
but it's a good warm-up. It begins this way. All meditative traditions, whatever the differences in underlying belief systems and in systematic techniques, agree in one essential aspect. The cause of the dissatisfaction, anxiety, and suffering, which seems to be inseparable from our lives, lies in a basic misinterpretation of the true nature of existence, a misinterpretation which clouds our perception of the actual facts and consequences of which we persist in futile attempts to pursue and secure things such as health, riches, happiness, and so on, which are by their very nature ephemeral and unattainable. By the way, I don't think that happiness is unattainable. The rest, health and riches, are ephemeral. But happiness, I think we could get. Meditative traditions also agree that to overcome the state of affairs, neither intellectual understanding nor religious faith are in themselves enough. Something has to be done, not only outwardly by performing acts of charity or of devotion, however beneficial these may be in helping others and in improving the mental attitude of the doer, but inwardly. Each person needs to work on him or herself to correct the fundamentally distorted perception of reality. This working on oneself, this internal reorganization of the psyche, is meditation. I think that's a very good line. Then it goes on to talk about the Four Noble Truths and that particular truth of uh, uh, suffering being the mind um, getting caught in something, the attention getting caught in something, the end of suffering being the <coughs> letting go of grasping onto anything and seeing clearly. <coughs> so this was the line that I copied out, permaplacked. The point of practice, well, here's the line before it, is to cultivate the line before it, mind, to cultivate the nine, mindful, non-reactive observation of bodily and mental processes so as to develop an increasingly thorough awareness, undistorted by our usual desires, fears, and views, etc., of their true nature. Their true nature is impermanent, without self, and therefore involving suffering on our part until we learn to let go. Here's the line. It is through mindful observation of what is actually there that the delusion which makes us perceive that which is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting, is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists in experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is impermanent and seeing that there is quite literally nothing to worry about. (laughs) So for a person who was a lifelong anxious fretter, that was such a piece of really good news. So we could take that, we'll start from that particular line next week because I want to talk about there is nothing that is permanent, everything changes, but um, is, is the awareness of nothing and everything changes? Georgia, Georgette, Georgia, what? Pauletta, not Georgetta, Pauletta. Pauletta asked me, she said, um, You know, I get it about impermanence, she said, but that does not make me happy. That makes me more anxious, actually. So I want to start from that. Knowing that everything is changing, that there's nothing to hold on to. Is that freeing or is that frightening? And how about what I actually believe is seeing that there's nothing to worry about. Whether or not there's nothing, anything to worry about, worry is always extra 
no matter what, if there's something or nothing. The act of worry. For the people who do not worry, who say, you know, I do the best I can, worrying is extra. That is very clear. When the mind is clear, that makes total sense. Nothing ever changes through worry. You know, although worriers feel that they are causing, to, they are, they are affecting the situation by their worry. It's a form of prayer. You know that really, and that if they cease to worry, it will go the wrong way. But um, so I want to take that one little sentence. If you would you like me to bring you copies of it, so everybody, I won't permaplaque them. I'll just bring them. If you want to permaplaque, you can take it and permaplaque it yourself. This talk was given. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.